Hello and welcome to the IBMS pod. This month, we catch up with Specialist Scientific Lead and Health Education England Ambassador, Azuma Kalu, and discuss mental health and workplace pressures. If you enjoy the discussion, be sure to check out his feature in the September issue of the Biomedical Scientist magazine. In Lab Life, our special guest host, Dr. Martin Kachara, is joined by student Stephen Schnabel for a conversation about learning and education in the pandemic. But first up, as always, the news. The IBMS is launching an exciting new website. Working with our website partner, Pixelate, the new IBMS site will deliver a wide range of resources, training, and events for members. Members will be able to log their training and maintain records online using a new CPD system, whilst also connecting to a new e-learning platform. IBMS President-elect Deborah Padgett recently presented alongside other prominent speakers a parliamentary committee focusing on healthcare innovation, which was hosted by the think tank Policy Connect. Representing the IBMS, Deborah acknowledged that technology and clinical innovation are vital in driving earlier diagnosis. Congratulations to all recipients of the 2022 Jen Johnson Bursary. The Jen Johnson Bursary was created in 2017 to honor former IBMS council member Jen Johnson and provide successful applicants with a grant of up to £1,000 to attend IBMS Congress. Whether you're a qualified biomedical scientist, a student, a university lecturer, or research scientist, we'd like you to present your project as a poster at Congress 2022. The application deadline has now been extended until the 15th of October 2021. You can find out more about all of our stories on our website. This month, we're joined by Azuma Kalu, who is a specialist scientific lead in clinical chemistry at Sheffield Teaching Hospital's NHS Foundation Trust, and is currently studying for a PhD in cancer genomics. Last year, he wrote an article in the Biomedical Scientist magazine, looking at how the pandemic has increased workplace pressure and impacted well-being in the lab. A year on, he's back and he's written a new article on the topic, this time focusing on, on how to adjust back to normal post-COVID. Hi, Zuma. How are you doing? Uh, thanks so much, uh, Jordan and Rob, for inviting me. I'm doing great. And how are you? Very good, thanks. So welcome to the podcast. Thank so you. you've just moved to a new role in Sheffield from Great Ormond Street, uh, and you're working in clinical chemistry. So could we start by just you telling us a little bit more about that role and, um, yeah, what you do in the lab right now? Right. So I've been employed as the specialist scientific lead of uh, specialized clinical chemistry of um, Sheffield Teaching Hospitals NHS Foundation Trust. Uh, we are one of the biggest in the foundation trusts in the country. And the laboratory medicine at Sheffield Teaching Hospital is actually one of the biggest. And it's ably run by um, two interim um, directorate managers. In the person of Richard Waddle and Dr. Whitaker. So um, I was uh, recruited into this role, and the people that played, you know, his significant roles in bringing me to Sheffield, you know, were Richard, uh, Dean Aziman, and Stephanie Martins. And I'm sure they identified, you know, the unique um, role I could play in um, moving the service forward. And, you know, I was um, asked to come and join you know, the team. And I must say it's been wonderful. I have been introduced to the very senior management team. 
And I, I, sh- I will say I was actually given a sort of celebrity treatment on the first uh, meeting, right. uh, which was, uh, which was, which was very, uh, it was, I have to say, I was, I was very impressed uh, coming from, you know, working in London and the Southeast for about 15 years and coming up north. And I've been received with open arms and uh, Sheffield Laboratory Medicine. I have to say it's one of the best. You know, it's, um, it's wonderful. The leadership, you know, it's mm. uh, motivational and they've got everything right. And I'm very happy that I'm here. Uh, and in, cl- in clinical chemistry itself, what kind of tests are you running day to day? What are the most common procedures going on in the lab? Right. So I am the specialist lead scientist in specialized clinical chemistry. And so I uh, manage three labs, um, mm. so to say. So we've got the toxicology lab, which is big. So we do coronal services, you know, we do all the postmortem. And sometimes do antimortem samples, you know, for mortuaries, for pathologists. Um, so we test, you know, to find out, you know, cases of drug overdose. We also are involved in uh, sort of prison testing for drugs for abuse. Um, we run, you know, therapeutic uh, drug monitoring and we provide, you know, a lot of services around drug testing. And we also have got, you know, the special chromatography that is, uh, you know, do a lot of esoteric testing. Mm. And also we've got um, the trace elements. So it's a very big lab. And so I'm responsible for, you know, um, leading, you know, the sort of uh, the scientific side, you know, of the work. And it's been wonderful. And I'm enjoying every minute of it. Mm. And as well as all of that, you've actually started a PhD recently looking at the role of epigenetic effectors and non-coding RNAs in potentially treating prostate cancer. So how did this come about? So um, about five years ago, um, I was just thinking through, you know, um, asking myself, you know, the question as, as a scientist, what contributions have I really made you know, to the scientific community? You know, because I've got to justify all the trainings I've had with mm-hmm. academic and uh, sort of professional training. And I was looking at areas where I could advance knowledge because research is all about advancing knowledge and breaking new grounds. And um, I, I asked myself, all right, so what are the common killers? You know, you know, when it comes to cancer, what are the common killers? And especially with men, because I think a lot of times, you know, um, we tend to forget you know, some of these cancers, you know, the effect it has on, on men. And then it occurred to me, you know, that uh, the number one killer, you know, cancer killer was actually lung cancer, followed by the prostate cancer, and that's in men. And going by the 2018, you know, statistics, you know, there were actually 21% of the cancer deaths, you know, uh, were actually due to lung cancer, and then 13% were due to prostate cancer, and then 10% due to bowel cancer. And I started, you know, to do some research, you know, to look at where, you know, an area where I could sort of uh, make more impact in terms of advancing, you know, research. And um, so I started discussing, you know, with my current, uh, you know, project, you know, supervisor, Dr. Francesco Crea of the Open University. And he put me in touch with a distinguished scientist of uh, the Vancouver 
prostate cancer, who's also a professor of urology, you know, um, a gentleman called Dr. Yujo Wang. Um, he's uh, a distinguished scientist. He knows a lot about prostate cancer. So we started working on a topic. And so that's how, you know, the topic came about. So I am being supervised by a team of four, um, you know, um, experienced, you know, researchers in the person of uh, Dr. Francesco Crea of the Open yeah. University. So I've got Dr. You know, John Golding and, uh, you know, um, I'm, I'm Bootsman as well as uh, Professor Yujo Wang. So it's been fascinating studying about, you know, the, uh, you know, the, what prostate cancer is doing to men and, uh, you know, how we can contribute as scientists in advancing the knowledge. Yeah, sounds great. So what are you actually aiming to do with your project then? Could you tell us a little bit more about these long, non-coding RNAs? which drive cancer dormancy. All right. So I, I think I'll start first of all by, you know, trying to explain what long non-coding RNAs are yeah. before I go into the cancer dormancy. So um, so what happens, uh, what happened is, so prior to 2000, we, uh, a lot of scientists and researchers had like, um, you know, the view about, um, about molecular biology. We said that, um, you know, the template for inheritance, which is the DNA, you know, so this DNA, um, which, you know, you find in every, you know, in, in the cell of, say, the human, you know, they, this DNA have got to be transcribed, you know, to a format that allows for them to be translated into proteins. Mm. So you've got the transcription of this DNA into RNA. And then the translation of this RNA into the, in, into proteins. Okay. Now, so this very simple understanding, you know, sort of allowed scientists to do a lot of research about proteins. Okay. And, you know, there was this view that every cancer, okay, was connected to protein. However, after the human genome, was decoded after 2001 when, you know, the first uh, template was published. It became clear to a lot of scientists and researchers that out of the entire human genome, that not even up to 2% of that genome was transcribed into protein. Right. So the question was, what is happening to the remaining 98% plus? All right. So. At first, a lot of scientists thought, oh, they were just sort of, uh, you know, junk, you know, um, molecules. Uh, but latterly, you know, due to advancement in research, we've been able to find that a lot of these are non-coding RNAs. And out of that population of non-coding RNAs, about 55% uh, of the class of uh, non-coding RNAs. So these non-coding RNAs are RNAs that have about more than 200 nucleotides in their sequences, okay, and they've been found to play a number of roles, you know, in the body. So uh, their, their functions are just enormous, and every research in the area is discovering, uh, you, know, uh, you know, something new, and which actually was getting a lot of us excited. So what's the role in dormancy? First of all, I have to sort of try and explain what dormancy is. So what 
happens in a solid, you know, um, 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 um cancer, you know, cancer, you know, when I'm, I mean solid cancer, you know, something like prostate cancer, you know, uterine cancer, and not like the lipid cancers like blood cancers. You know, so in the solid cancer, what happens is, you know, um, you have two sort of um, causes of treatment, you know, men. So you've got the chemotherapy, you know, um, so drug treatment, I've got the surgical removal. So these are sort of the, you know, two options, you know, that, are, you know, some of the options that I usually consider. Yeah. So what happens is, so after this, the patient has been taken through this course of treatment, and they have been certified you know, to be cancer clear, you know, through maybe scans, through their clinical presentation, they are normally discharged, you know, from the treatment. However, you know, for some of them, after months and years, sometimes even several years, the cancer resurfaces. And it comes with so much force that in many cases, it kills the patient. So the question is, what happens between this period after this patient has been discharged from the treatment to when the cancer, you know, reactivates? So that period is what you term as uh, cancer dormancy. Okay. Now, our research has actually shown that right from even before the diagnosis of the primary, you know, tumor, that some of the cancer cells, you know, escape from the primary site. So what cancer cells do is that, you know, when cancer begins to develop, so it creates an environment around the cell that is very acidic. And that acidic environment, you know, produces a lot of, uh, you know, um, chemical called lactate. So it sort of acidifies the environment. And due to this acidification, the, the tension of the, 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 the concentration of oxygen at the cell level, you know, becomes very low. Now, your cell, our cells need oxygen to survive. So what happens is the body has to react in a way to make oxygen available at mm -hmm. the tissue level, at the cell level, all right? So there is a process called angiogenesis. So it is the growing of vessels, of blood vessels. So the body begins to grow blood vessels towards the cancer cell area. So when these vessels grow towards the cancer cell area, now its its aim primarily is to supply oxygen. However, because these vessels have grown towards the cancer cell area, a lot of the cancer cells now follow through the vessels and escape from the primary site and then move to distant parts of the body. So they move to other tissues of the body, a process which you call metastasis, all right? So okay. they go to all these tissues and some of them hide. So they hibernate. So the question we're asking is, how are they able to hibernate? How are they able to, you know, sort of um, hide immune system? Principally, so my research, you know, is trying to find a way to enable us, you know, dictate, you know, the presence of cancer, even during that period of dormancy. And okay. we want to do this. We want to do this by trying to identify, you know, certain biomarkers, what we call biomarkers are, are, are biological agents. So these agents allow us to dictate, to say, yes, something is there or not. So I'll give you an example. Say in pregnancy, 
if a woman is pregnant, you know, we'll tell them, right, you get a, a, a urine sample. And when they get the urine sample, so we test it. And then we're able to tell if they're pregnant or not. Now, that's because in the urine is a, 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 is something that's called the, it's a hormone that's called the HCG. So that hormone is able to tell us, you know, whether the woman is pregnant or not. All right. So we want to apply the same principle, you know, to be able to pick up, you know, these biomarkers either in blood or urine, you know, so that when this person who's been declared cancer free and has been taken off treatment, you know, we're able to monitor their blood or urine and then we pick up the levels, you know, of those biomarkers. You know, if they're high, we can tell, oh, you know, they still do have residual, you know, cancer okay. potential in them. So at the end so of this, so the end of this, you're hoping to develop some form of test to detect the biomarkers in the patient's blood, essentially. Uh, and that will tell you if the cancer is likely to come back or not. Absolutely. So yeah. it's what we call translational research. So how are you able to move, you know, the experiments, the testings that you do in the lab, and then you're able to move it to become, you know, useful in patient, uh, you know, monitoring management and, uh, you know, clinical care. So that's what translational research is all about. So Excellent. That's what I'm doing, yes. Well, that sounds brilliant. Thanks for going through that in such detail. Thank you. Uh, so I'll hand you over to Rob now. Uh, he's got some questions on well-being in the workplace for you. Thank yes, you. Yes, indeed, Azuma. Hello. Hi, um, Rob. We first met uh, over email back in, I think it was July 2020, when you That's emailed nice. me a feature about managing pressure in the workplace. Now, you're doing a PhD. You are, you've got a very busy working life. What made you decide to, off your own back, because I didn't contact you initially, you got in touch with me. What made you decide to do it, Azumi? You've got a lot on your place already. That's correct. But like I've always said, you know, um, as scientists, you know, we should always ask ourselves, you know, the question, what difference can we make, you know, through our work, you know, through sharing of ideas, you know, to improve lives, to improve the working environment. And this actually comes from my own experience, you know, um, from, you know, working in the NHS. It's not been easy. And I've tried to flip my experience, you know, to be able to help other people, you know, by sharing through writing, you know, through providing safe space for people to be able to feel that, you know, they can come into the lab and work, you know, in a safe environment. And so that motivated me to, you know, start writing, you know, to share ideas of what I consider as, you know, good practice, you know, when it comes to, you know, because at, at the end of the day, I think we uh, overemphasize, you know, physical health and underemphasize, you know, mental well-being. And that is principally because, you know, we are giving consideration to what we see. So I've decided, you know, in my own little way, you know, to begin to highlight some of these issues, which are bothering people. As you know, we all are different. So we have a lot of problems, you know, based on our upbringing, you know, based on our family circumstances. You know, we come into work and the last thing you want is for you, you know, to be put under pressure, you know, and uh, whatever we can do to sort of improve, you know, the working life you know, of uh, people, you know, in the lab, 
you know, that will be, a, you know, a, a little contribution, you know, in um, improving, you know, our working environment. So that's the primary reason why I thought, well, I've got to start sharing these ideas, you know. And do, do you think these, these issues around mental health and workplace pressures, are they specific to labs or are they specific to the NHS or, you know, across entire, you know, the, the kind of working population? Do you feel like in contemporary society, everyone is having their own version of this kind of set of problems depending on their industry? That's very true. So it's universal. It's something that occurs in every work supply. And, you know, uh, but, but the only difference is that in every setting, you know, it's slightly different, you know, the way it presents itself, you know, depending on the sort of work that is done in that particular work setting. So, uh, but, but principally, you know, um, the, 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 the presentations are the same, you know, because if somebody has, you know, mental health issues, you know, as a result of pressure at work, whether they work in the lab or they work in a supermarket or they work in an engineering company, you know, the presentations are the same. So we just have to do what we can in our little, you know, spaces to, to provide a, a, a safe working environment, you know, for people. So as a biomedical scientist, you know, I feel my role is to sort of, uh, you know, talk about what I know, you know, you know, using my experience at scale. So that's why. I've sort of you know, been talking about you know the issues as it relates you know to healthcare scientists. And in your journey through the NHS, have things improved over recent years? Kind of, we hear a lot about mental health and well-being in newspapers. Has there been any tangible change, or are we at the same kind of point we were ten years ago? Uh, I would say there's been a lot of improvement, and that's really due to awareness because. A lot of people have been speaking up and many people have been sharing their experiences as well. And the legislation, especially from the government and institutions, I mean, with the NHS, I think there's been a lot of awareness and also, you know, the, the, the obligation, you know, from managers, you know, to make sure that, um, you know, uh, we, we, you know, staff are provided with, with the information and there's also support. You know, whether it's professional health or counseling services, the information is there, but it's all about access. Because at the end of the day, you know, a new worker that comes into a workplace might not know that if they're having a particular issues that they could access help, you know, through a particular channel. So it is therefore the responsibility of the managers, the supervisors in the different workplaces. To make sure that you know their staff are provided with all this information, and, and we had a pretty overstretched, under pressure workforce anyway. Then a pandemic comes along. How how have things changed over the last kind of eighteen months, Azuma? It's been very difficult, you know, to say the least. Because I know a lot of uh, my colleagues, including myself, you know, we've had to work under extreme pressure um, at the start of the pandemic. As you know, uh, many workplaces had to put in contingency measures, you know, to try to make sure that there was sort of continuity of services. And because of the requirements for uh, staff that were vulnerable or deemed vulnerable to, you know, um, self-isolate, it meant that many laboratories were sort of, uh, you know, uh, depreciated in terms of uh, staff numbers. 
And so there was heightened, you know, pressure that was uh, placed on the staff that were available to, you know, keep the service running. So it's been very difficult. And in some labs that, you know, you've had uh, a lot of self-isolations, um, you, it was just left for very few numbers of staff to, you know, keep, you know, the service going, especially the ones that do out of our service. So you had, you know, in labs that, you know, one or two staff were covering all the out of power service. So it's not been, you know, um, it, it, it's been very stressful, you know, um, you know, for a lot of, uh, you know, healthcare scientists. And, um, one year on from, from your first article, Mr. Zumi, you've written another article for the biomedical scientist, which should be landing on doorsteps in the September issue. Uh, and one of the things I'd, I'd like you to flesh out a bit more for me was that there was a fascinating insight in there where you talked about how uh, the there's been kind of inequality has been exacerbated a bit by the fact that the senior management are the people who are able to work from home. They can work remotely, whereas the more junior staff, by the very nature of their job, have to go into the workplace every day. Can you talk a bit how that has kind of affected mental health and maybe even morale in the workplace as well? Yeah, thanks so much, uh, Rob, for resignation. Um, the thing is, um, in a lot of the meetings that I've attended, um, so, I mean, whether it's a management meeting or supervisory level meeting or the senior management meeting, um, a lot of discussions are usually about, you know, getting people to work from home. and um, not a lot of considerations have been given to the people that are actually able to work from home. And like everything, you know, the ones that end up benefiting are the ones that sit at the table, at the high table, and, you know, make all the decisions. And in this case, it's usually the senior managers. So you have been some labs, you know, where the senior managers, you know, had to work from home, you know, due to their vulnerability or, um, you know, um, any other, you know, or maybe they just felt right. There were three of them in the office and the office could only, you know, um, hold two people. And so a senior manager decides to work from home or a senior scientist decides, right, you know, that they could do their reporting of results from home. And so they decide to work from home. Now, in all this, you realize that, you know, the ones that have benefited are actually the ones that are highly placed. While the medical laboratory assistants, you know, the associate practitioners, you know, the junior healthcare scientists who do most of the work, you know, have been required to come in, you know, daily to do the work. Now, while the senior managers, you know, as I've, you know, um, sort of noted in my article, you know, have been able to save on their transport allowance. Just say, for example, you're someone that works in London. And um, so they spend on the average 400 pounds. Or 300, 400 pounds, you know, every month on, on, on transportation, you know, so you've got this amount of money coming back to you and you live in the same area with a medical laboratory assistant who is required to come into work every day. All right. Still spending that amount of money. Surely there is some sort of unfairness in it. And I've not heard anybody, you know, say or challenge it or say something, you know, about it. I think, um, you know, from what I've heard, you know, um, you know, people have, you know, you know, talked to me about it. You know, I feel that, 
you know, using my platform, you know, to sort of start the discussion. The question is, right, you know, what can we do to support these low-level staff, you know, these junior staff who've had to put in day and night shift, you know, to keep the service going? They've all been required, you know, a lot of them to drive into work, you know, every day, you know, uh, 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 every single, you know, weekday, sometimes on weekends to keep the service going. You know, whether they were nice shifts, they've been required to come into work. And, you know, whether it's, you know, going by a train or the buses. So they've been exposed, you know, to higher risks than the senior managers that have been at home, you know, through this period. So surely something needs to be you know, done to sort of um, help the junior staff begin to have a feel that, oh, somebody's actually in a sort of, uh, you know, thinking about them. I'm yet to see that happen. And if this will sort of start the discussion, that'll be wonderful. That seems like the perfect note for me to hand you over to Jordan, Zuma. Uh, there's some, some great points there. And now I'm going to hand you over with a quick fire round. Jordan. Yep. Yes. Thanks, Rob. Thanks, yes. Rob. <laughs> Thanks. So, yes, we've got some sentences for you to finish. Um, All right. In the quick fire round. <laughs> <laughs> so this should be related to your work. So nothing okay. too, right. nothing too tough. See. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Um, so the first sentence is, my favorite piece of lab equipment is? Oh, that will be the pipette. The pipette? Why? Yeah, yeah because I, um, so if you get it right, you know, because I work in, you know, uh, clinical chemistry. Mm. So if you get it right, you know, with your measurement, it means that it goes a long way in sort of uh, making sure that, you know, the rest of the results uh, are correct because you've got to take, you know, the right amount of volume, you know, to be able to perform your assay. So if you get it wrong, then it means that, you know, your end result is going to be wrong. So that's where I'll go with it. But the trusty old pipette. <laughs> yeah. And okay, so my favorite type of RNA is that'll be the London RNA because that's where my um, research is on. Uh, so, given the choice of working from home or working from the office, my preferred pattern of work would be. I, I would like to work from the office, and that is because I strongly believe that for us to you know, be able to train, you know, the future workforce, we've got to be physically there. You know, I'm sure a lot of people might disagree with me, but as a scientist, there surely there are some positions that you can work from home. You know, that is very true. But as a scientist, you know, if you want to be able to train the future workforce, you've got to be there to actually guide them to hold their hands, you know, to be able to show them, you know, how to do it properly. So I'll always, you know, prefer to work from the office. My favorite thing about living in Sheffield is? Oh, the people are lovely. I yeah. mean, I'm working for a great team, you know, Richard Waddle, Dean Tazeman, you know, I've got lovely people all around me. You know, it's just been brilliant and I'm loving every minute of it. Perfect. Well, thanks so much for coming on, Azim. Yeah, thanks, Azim. <laughs> Pleasure to talk to you. Thanks Thank so you. much, Rob. Thanks, Jordan. Bye, bye.
Hello, uh, welcome to this episode of Lab Life or the IBMS podcast. I am Dr. Marty Pashara from the University of Wolverhampton, and I'm going to be your guest host for this episode. Now, students all over the country are going to be returning back to university come the end of September. And of course, many of them are going to be coming back from learning within the pandemic and having experiences in the pandemic to studies, of course, in biomedical science. And students have still been practicing and studying all the way through the pandemic panic. So what we thought, it'd be really good for us to talk to a student to find out about what they've been up to and their experiences. And I'm here with one of our fantastic students from the Department of Biomedical Science and Physiology at the University of Wolverhampton called Stephen Schnabel. How are you doing, Stephen? How's things? Keeping busy. Excellent. Busy busy's good. Absolutely. Okay. So just to kick off, why don't you tell us what you're all about, what you've been doing and all about yourself? Hello, so I'm Stephen. I'm a third year biomedical scientist student at the University of Wolverhampton. I'm technically going to be going into my final year because I've just come off a placement at Newcross Hospital studying clinical chemistry. But I do have a whole host of experiences, both pre-COVID, post-COVID, both within the lab, some internal stuff with the uni, some external stuff. I've been abroad. I've done some private lab experiences. I've worked in the NHS. So a rounded experience as a whole within the lab, really. Now, you mentioned there you've been on placement and you suggested that you've even been abroad. Why, why didn't you tell us about that, what these placements that you've been on? I actually went out to Prague for a two-month internship. And then and I, I actually was fortunate that I got to um, do a actual proper placement. So my course is normally just a three-year course, so the BSc mm-hmm. Biomedical Science. But if you get a chance to do a sandwich placement between second and third year, yeah. it becomes a BSc Applied Biomedical Science. Sure. So I was fortunate enough to get a placement um, to do my IBMS Certificate of Competency, mm-hmm. which basically means that the Institute can say that I have the knowledge to practice as a biomedical scientist within a hospital. Sure. So I basically completed that this year. So that's through the pandemic. What was it like being a placement student in an NHS trust lab through the pandemic? The placement were great from the get-go. They just had a training plan. They taught me through everything. I had a training officer. The uni were helpful. So I was in constant contact with everyone. And to be honest, I could almost say that I felt like there wasn't even a pandemic. The only difference generally I feel like being on placement was that I had to wear a mask all day. I felt in a better position by being on placement because I was in contact with a lot of the students who were at the university doing the courses with our group. And they were like, we've got this to do and this to do, but we can't go in because there's no lectures or we can't go in because it's recorded and I'm struggling. And then I'm thinking, I'm quite lucky here because I'm basically getting a practical, a final year practical that's just a year long. So I was going into work every day. So in actual fact, my life was kind of pretty normal. I was getting up, I was going to work, I was coming back. And that was my routine. In actual fact, I think in a funny sort of way, the placement students, they have and they haven't been affected by the pandemic. I mean, a couple of comments from the hospital were made that actually under normal circumstances, we would have had a lot more face-to-face and explaining a bit more about the principles, whereas with like social distancing, reduced numbers in labs. And because there were so many students, there wasn't that opportunity this year. So, I mean... I've made the most out of it, and I think I've had the best placement possible. Mm. Others might say that they wish to have a bit more contact. I know uh, through your work with the university, you've been quite involved in actually promoting <laughs> biomedical science, haven't you? 
just want to tell us a little bit about the sort of public engagement work you've been doing to promote yeah. the disciplines. I'm a student ambassador at the university, so I help out on open days. Um, I do a few different things. Um, I've helped out do a lot of different lab sessions. So when um, primary schools or high schools come in for STEM engagement mm-hmm. in the main uh, labs at the university, I either show them about, give them a lab tour, talk about my experiences. I've also helped do the uh, STEM engagement shops. So we're in the Wolfruna Centre and we set up a stall and I was there promoting biomedical science and helping out here, there and everywhere. I recently, during lockdown, did a Zoom call for a couple of the different high schools, basically talking about my experience. I helped at the Big Bang at the NEC as well. Some of your colleagues, for instance, on on our pathways here at Wolverhampton, haven't had those opportunities. So how do you think the pandemic has affected those other people studying? Regardless of just biomedical science, being a student throughout the pandemic has been hard. Obviously, for those working at home, they're obviously always took at home, but I was in student accommodation. So right. at least I had a hall of six. Yes. So at least I was with somebody, mm. whereas some of the students were just in their house with their family. They didn't really have any friends from their course other than physically seeing sure. them. It's impacted everybody slightly differently. I think everybody has then taken it in their own stride. Yeah. to react differently. People have made the pandemic how they want to make it. People have argued and gone, this is really unfair. People have just gone, you know what? It's happened. What can we do? Let's just get on with it and make the most out of it. We've had a lot of bad, but there's got to have been some good. In just a few words, what's what's been your most positive experience during the pandemic? I think my most positive experience during the pandemic is actually that I've been able to do a placement. Because the hospital could well in their right have just gone, we're not taking any students this year, too rushed off their feet. It's just going to be the staff in there. And then I would be doing my final year. And then hopefully this, I would have completed my degree. And then I would be looking for potentially a job to do my certificate. So having the opportunity to actually do a placement in the first place and be privileged enough to actually have a reason to be able to leave the house to go and work, because I was doing important work, I think that that's just been been the best thing. So just to finish off today, let's finish with a classic. All right. And so if you could give just one piece of advice to a student that was going to be studying biomedical science, it might be somebody thinking about moving into studying biomedical science and so on. What was the one piece of advice that you could give them? Oh, in, in interesting one. I think... The thing is with biomedical science, if you're going to go into it, if you have an idea that you you might like a particular discipline, for example, like you really like microbiology or you really like something else. If you go into, say, for a degree that's just in that subject, you're sort of limited to that particular subject. Whereas with biomedical scientists, you suddenly have this freedom to decide where you want to go. So I personally would recommend if you want to go into a particular science, a particular subject, go with biomedical science because you'll learn a, you'll have a baseline knowledge across all the courses, you'll access to all the resources, and then actually you might decide that actually no, immunology isn't for me, or no, hematology is more for me. I quite like the idea of blood, or no, actually microbes is more for me. So if that my advice is, if you want a career in science, start with the basics, build from there. 
If you want a career in the lab, start with biomedical science, start from the basics, build from there. Main thing I would say is do your research. Science is very, very wide. Yes. You can go from anything from plants to space. <laughs> it, it's very, very, it, it generally is, it, biology is very, it, it's wide. So if I, the, my advice generally is do your research. If you want something with science, go biomed because you, you learn everything that you learn, all your disciplines, and then, and then you can decide what you want For to sure. do. Yeah. Because yeah. then with biomed, you've got that biomed degree. Say you go into chemistry like I've done and mm. you spend a year there and you go, actually, I'm not really into to, to chemistry. I think I might change, go somewhere else. That degree kind of sets you up. So you, can, you have that ability to be flexible. You can decide where you want to go. You're not setting stone. So that's my advice. All right, then, Stephen. It's been absolutely fantastic to speak to you today. Thank you for taking no the time to chat to us for the Lab Life section no of the IBMS podcast. And good luck for the coming Thank year. You. And I'll see you, you in the lecture theatre hopefully sometime see soon. See you in the lecture theatre. <laughs> see you soon. <laughs> see you Bye. later. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. These podcasts are released monthly at the same time the magazine comes out. So whenever a new issue lands on your doormat, head back online to listen to a new episode. And don't forget that these podcasts can be used for your CPD. Take care and bye.